Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. In today's episode, we're asking, is the future of SME banking specialization? Whether you prefer the abbreviation SME or SMB, the truth is that there is a vast collection of micro, small and medium-sized businesses and enterprises wrapped up uh, underneath those terms. The World Economic Forum estimates that 90% of businesses globally can be categorized as small and medium-sized enterprises. That's a lot of businesses to cover with the same standard financial services offerings. So, what's the opportunity to specialize? So in this show, we've put together a panel of outstanding experts to discuss how does SME banking work today, what are the challenges in serving small business niches, and will the future see more niche-focused products for small and medium-sized businesses? So we're going to discuss all this and more in today's show, but first, a few brief messages. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. The Blinkist app offers distilled content from over 5,000 non-fiction books and podcasts in an audio-first experience, so you can easily fit them into your day, letting you learn new things all on the go. Discover a friend of the show Dan McCrum's Money Men, his journey to exposing the Wirecard scandal, all within 20 minutes. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash fintech to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account with a friend or partner and get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com forward slash fintech. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of esteemed and insightful guests who are going to shed a lot of light on this topic. So first of all, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Atif Siddiqui, founder and chief executive officer of Branch. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being here, Atif. Can you remind our listeners about you and about Branch, please? It's great to be back. Thanks, Benjamin. Um, Branch is a workforce payments platform. You know, we really help businesses pay workers instantly through a digital wallet, associated debit card, and provide those workers financial services. You know, typically we've been able to focus on sort of like hourly or on-demand jobs that have been underserved by traditional financial services and rely on alternative financial services. Um, I think for this conversation, what's really going to be great is to talk about, you know, SMEs we serve as employers um, and how we provide them services, as well as, you know, in the workforce side, uh, emerging SME markets like independent contractors, 1099 workers, solopreneurs and their needs. Fantastic. Welcome. We have a FinTech Insider debut for Peter Beckman, Chief Executive Officer of Trade. Welcome, Peter. What should our audience know about you and about trade? 
Thank you. Well, as you know, what, what trade does is we help merchant brands uh, sell first and pay suppliers later, uh, very simply put. So it's a new type of working capital financing, supplier invoice financing, if you will. So we help sort of merchant brands. So it could be a, a, an apparel brand or a headphones brand or a bicycle brand that don't do their own manufacturing. And those types of companies almost always pay their suppliers in advance, often months before getting the product. And that's uh, obviously a very big problem. And that's what we do. Excellent. Thank you and welcome. And then finally, it's another welcome return to Fintech Insider for Lara Gilman, who is head of new ventures at iWalker. Welcome back, Lara. You were last on the podcast in 2019, so I imagine a few things have changed. Can you tell our newer listeners um, a little bit about you and your role at iWalker, please? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's quite a fancy title, but I would say that my um, my day to day job is on one of our products, iWalker Pay. But taking a step back, iWalker, which actually stands for Instant Working Capital, um, we have been in the market since 2012, and we offer um, accessible uh, loans to small businesses in the UK and in Germany. And kind of off the back of our tech and lending stack, we launched a new product, which is similar to Trade, um, in that we are looking also at contextual. Um, lending for businesses who want to offer payment terms. So we work in the UK. Uh, the product I walk pay that I basically spend my whole time on is um, really around allowing businesses to offer payment terms to their customers. 2012. So that means you're not a startup anymore. So congratulations. Uh, but you definitely can't count as a startup. You're part of the old guard now. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's amazing how fast that happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you all. Welcome. Okay, so let's let's dive in, and I think uh, where we want to start is just thinking about sort of how the uh, how the industry kind of got to this point. Of, you know, the, how the sort of banking and financial services industry got to this point of sort of having lots of sort of underserved needs, as as, as you were saying in, in some of your introductions. You know, is the opportunity for fintech the opportunities that, that companies like yours have seized? Does that come out of the the sort of the failure, perhaps, of, of big banks to? Um, serve this market effectively. Peter, perhaps I'll come to you, you first on this. Is, it, is the opportunity created by the sort of failure of existing banks and other lenders to, to meet the needs of small, small medium-sized businesses? To some extent, yes. Uh, I mean, we've seen, everybody's seen, I think, uh, large incumbent banks really leaving the SME segment in terms of credit. It's not the comfortable segment for them. It's a, it's a challenging fit. And that has been happening for the past 25, 30 years, I think. But in our minds, it's actually something different. It's, it's much more that they haven't seized the opportunity. Because from our perspective, it's possible thanks to technology, thanks to everything that has happened in fintech, not least, that we can build upon to create this really good service for a specific need and do that on a more on a global scale than a uh, than a local uh, scale, and I and that's really how we see it. So I, we don't really like to sort of <laughs> uh, bash on banks too much. Fundamentally, uh, we think <laughs> I mean, all our customers have have banks, uh, but none of them have a bank that provides what we do. And uh, and it, I, so I, I think that's the bigger picture here. Actually, is the enabling. Uh, making it possible to build these types of services now with a tech approach, a very different approach from how banks uh, build services. I think that's the big one. Atif, can I ask you to sort of build on Peter's point about, you know, sort of none of the banks have the kind of services that, that we offer and so on. What are some of the services that that small businesses and medium-sized businesses need? What are some of the sort of essential services that they need, regardless of 
who they're provided for? What are, what are some of the core things that many or most smaller businesses need? I think first and foremost, um, need to be cost effective, right? At the end of the day, like make sure that their needs, you know, are a little bit, they're more cost sensitive in certain cases. Along with that, I think of one of the areas where we often see a big um, value for banks is just like anything that you can do to help with their cash flow. Right. So obviously, Peter and Laura understand that very well. It's like that's their lifeblood of business. They want to reinvest uh, that money back in so they can continue to grow. And some of the ancillary things are also just like ease of use and right and ability to kind of grow with them and help them scale. Right. So I think everybody's ambition as an SME is to continue to grow and be a bigger you know organization someday. And so having that in mind and making sure that any provider can grow with them is really important. Thank you, Laura. I'd love to bring you in on on this sort of point about just thinking about some of the different sectors of of the market because one of the dangers of the sort of abbreviations SMB and SME is you kind of assume oh they're all the same um, but of course actually there's a range of companies that are just one person you know sort of freelancers almost all the way up to companies of maybe 250 employees you've got a lot of variety in that um, where do you see how do you sort of see that market and think about some of the sort of opportunities for specialization within that yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. And I actually say that, like, you've kind of hit the nail, probably also why it's hard for banks. I would argue the SMB market is such a three-dimensional problem that then you take a step where banks are also managing multiple asset classes with huge books, and they have to make prioritization calls. And so sometimes SMEs, which we see a lot of value in, but it's a full-time job just to understand what that market is and how it's going to work, and exactly for the reason you talk. You will have people who behave like consumers, you know, freelancers, all the way up to a very complicated procurement process, even if it's only a business that's turning over 10, 15, 20 million, because they're still thinking about how are we going to work with what services. And so as a provider, you as being a specialist who kind of says, look, we're just going to work on small businesses, which is already a huge sector, that already means that you're you're kind of still facing an uphill battle of figuring out, okay, how do I position something? Is it going to be available to sole traders? Is it not going to be available to sole traders? Is it, how are we going to think about the big businesses? Are we going to really make it available to them? Do we want to only work with them? Do we want to go with small ones? How do we make it scalability? And so you have to really think about what problems are you relevant for and what audience is it going to resonate with? And I think for banks who are doing that, plus consumer banking, plus da 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 da, it just naturally, it becomes a harder headspace, mind game. So so I agree. Actually, I think Peter made a really good point, but it's not to beat up banks. They're being thoughtful about where they can prioritize with the skills and ability and capacity and tech they're dealing with. The benefit that, that we have as specialists is that we can really think about these customers and really think just all day long, what is their problem? How can we solve it? And how can we build the tech to make it better? So I think that's, that's kind of how I, how I think about that angle. That's great. Atif, is there, a, is there a part of the market that Branch focuses on? Do you have, I hesitate to say, do you have a typical customer? Uh, but is there a sort of segment or part of the market that you find is particularly receptive to your services or that you're particularly focused on? Yeah, I think, you know, we serve SMEs in two ways. One is, um, you know, on the employer side, uh, we work with employers that really are looking to improve cash flow, specifically around worker payments. They want to pay workers faster. They're looking for a cost-effective way to do that without impacting their cash flow. And so, um, you know, we work with a lot of companies that employ 
employ 1099 workers and we can accelerate those payments. Just for our just for our listeners who are not in the States, what is a 1099 worker? It sounds like someone who earns $10.99 an hour, but that's probably wrong, right? I remember this this got brought up last time I was on the podcast. Uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a worker that um, you know does not have their tax withholdings, uh, you know what we call a W2 worker here, so they have to handle all their taxes independently uh, on their own. And so Got it. Um, and so, you know, pushing, so this would be like a, a, an Uber driver, right? So we can help them get paid right after every ride. Um, or even like a SME restaurant, right? Example where they want to tip out their workers faster and there's just no cash to do that. Um, the other way, I think, which is also really interesting that we serve an SME is this idea of these like solopreneurs, right? The gig workers I mentioned that are receiving the payments faster. And oftentimes they're new business owners, right? And they need a business bank account. They need a business debit card. They need financial services and tools to help them grow their business. And so that's kind of where we meet them as well by partnering with their platforms and kind of serving those emerging market of SMEs. Got it. And Peter, how did how did trade sort of come across its niche and what sort of SMEs are you serving? How did you sort of, how did you get going? Which, which part of the market are you finding particularly successful? I mean, we actually, we, we started really the whole company by talking to lots of SMEs and they told us what, what they needed. So, I mean, my back, I worked for many years in, in international trade, helping mainly large corporates do cross-border business. And this is actually my second startup in that whole field. Uh, the first one I crashed <laughs> and one of the lessons from the old. Bye luck. Uh, for a very unusual reason as well. I, I actually flew into a mountain uh, doing speed flying. Oh my God. One of those things you shouldn't do. Wow. Yeah, that's a, an unusual way to crash a company, but you know, I had some stupid hobbies, I guess. Uh, but anyway. That's going to so, be an amazing graph, the outlier <laughs> in the corner of, uh, of the company. Like, you know, you run out of cash, set it up, yeah. and then you're in a mountain. <clears throat> my investors don't allow me to do this anymore. Uh, fortunately, I you guess. Literally, uh, you literally flew into a mountain. My God. Yes. Uh, so six months in a wheelchair and, you know, a bit of, I'm all good now. So uh, in the end, a very good thing uh, because it turned into an even better company. Uh, so what we did was uh, we spent a lot of time because like in this area, talking to SMEs who traded internationally. So and for us, a category of them were saying like almost copy paste answers. They were saying like, if you can solve our import problem, we'll be your customer. It's like, Please, how can we help you solve this problem? So, okay, what's your import problem? We pay our suppliers in advance, and there's just no way to finance that. And it hurts so much for us because we're saying no to customers, or if they were e-commerce brands, they were like, we're wasting our marketing dollars here because we're constantly running out of stock uh, for a most important product or that size or that color. And they do things like air freight. So they waste half their margin to save five weeks. Uh, and really bad for the environment. So it's one of those super painful problems. And obviously it's a very niche problem, uh, like small companies with highly international supply chains have this problem. But for us, we also did a bit of more bigger picture analysis and realizing that 28% of world trade is paid with cash in advanced terms. So that's you know close to six trillion dollars. Twenty eight percent of world trade is paid with cash in advance. Exactly. Terms. And that was in all honesty a bit of a surprise to me because I had worked with larger corporates and they don't do that. Uh, it's a very different world. But for us, that meant that although it seems like a very small niche, it might be the one we focus on. That might be say one percent or two percent of the companies in a country, but it's still 
an enormous pain point for them. And if we build this as a highly international uh, company that solves this problem and focuses on that, it's we could actually do something meaningful here. Uh, so that's really how we got started. And we've tried to keep that approach uh, continually to talk as much as we possibly can to customers just to figure out, like, we got one problem to solve in this world. And, you know, that's what we do. So learning from customers, very straightforward. It, it's so interesting you say that, and I, just to bump it, but in, um, because it really resonates with how actually I walk. So I walk and pay, we don't do the international, but we do it locally. And it was an interesting kind of um, similar dynamic that we actually, our, our flagship product is a flexi loan, which is basically an alternative to an overdraft. Um, actually, we're one of the biggest suppliers in the UK um, with that particular product. But we were noticing that why people were using it was to pay a supplier or, or cover an invoice. And it was, again, that cash flow back in the local context that was a real problem. And digging into that and talking to customers, it was kind of a similar pain point in that what was happening was, you know, people were sort of saying, well, I'm basically giving terms to my customer, acting like a bank, and I'm hoping they're going to pay me back, but I need the cash flow to cover the gap. And we're like, well, this is ridiculous. Like, if you need a loan, why why do you have to, like, leave this journey, go out and find it, figure out what it is, come back and pay your supplier? Like, why can't it all be in the same place? Why do we need to find, like, different products out of context to make that decision? And so kind of that's where we started doing our walk-up pay. So, yeah, it's, I mean... I know we're sort of in slightly different spaces, but um, it really resonates as a very similar kind of pain point that comes through. It's like, how do you, how can you make this one problem go away? And you're like, okay, yes, what, what tech can we build to do that? So that's really cool. I agree. It's, it's curious. I mean, we, the fun thing about those like niche problem solving things as well is, I mean, it's obviously really hard if you're a large bank to solve that one little niche because there are thousands of those little niches. But the reaction from customers when it's a big pain point, like we had one actually brought their marketing agency when we were super early, they like to a meeting with us because like they were so pissed off they didn't find it earlier, uh, <laughs> which is uh, a really curious thing. And obviously you don't want to say like we've only been doing this for a couple of months. It's not doesn't sound very credible, I guess. So it was more like thank you. We'll talk to them. Yeah, sorry, off topic. No, no, no. This is good. This, no, this is great because this is what you're talking about. Really, is how you, how your business is fo really focused on your customers, how you understood what the problems they had were, and then how you set about trying to solve some of those problems. And that's actually where we wanted to go next: is is to think about some of the sort of challenges and opportunities in in in, in specialising. Um, but also, Lara, in talking, you, you you sort of made this really interesting point about well, you know, if you're an SME and you're trying to run your business, you don't want to have to be, sort of keep going off here, there, and everywhere to find lots of different specialist services because that gets quite difficult. Are we going to see more specialization? I mean, what what's what's making it hard for? to get more sort of specialist products, right? We have all these different sectors, all these different niches in small businesses. You know, we've talked about, you know, huge variety of importers, gig workers, and so on. Tiff, I'm going to throw this really hard question at you. Um, how, how difficult is it to start creating lots of specialist products for different types of micro or small business? Uh, I think for us, it's less about kind of, um, you know, the the industries that we can serve more around, are there similar pain points, right, among customer bases? And that's how we look at it. It's not necessarily a size scale. It's more, this pain point is very similar in this industry than it is to another. And so we can kind of use our same use case across that. 
Um, you know, with that said, I do see a, a growing need for more nuances, and you do see a, a rise in sort of SME bank digital banking products, right? Catered to kind of specific personas. So you're a startup, and you need a, your first bank account. You're a truck driver, and you just started your first, uh, you know, trucking company. What does that look like? And so there are nuances um, where we've kind of played, however, is more focused around sort of that independent business owner, that solo business owner, and helping them uh, kind of grow their business and provide them the tools to do so. Lara, do you think we could go down that path? Because in, in the sort of consumer banking market, you know, we're starting to see banks that are focusing on, you know, very sp- specific segments of customers. So rather than serving a geographic area, we're now, you know, this is a bank for this type of person and this type of person and that type of person. Could we see the emergence of sort of banks for gig workers and, you know, banks for importers and banks for restaurants and banks for, you know, hairdressers? (laughs) How far does this go? I think, I think like all good problems, it depends on the depth of the market, Um, but also depends on sort of systemic readiness. And I think one of the things that you that we know, you know, is that consumers are just further along in the digital adoption journey than SMEs. Um, I think something like it was like more than 90% of consumers in the UK are using online banking, whereas like I think now like still like 80 percent are, are using online banking of SMEs. So there's just a little bit of a lag. So I think consumer behavior is probably a little bit of a bellwether of what's to come with SMEs. And certainly, you know, with the while payment terms and trade credit have been around a very, very long time, it's fascinating that the B2B version of that is only just getting started. Whereas we've all seen what happened with the, you know, kind of buying apparently in a consumer that's exploded and probably having a little bit of a reflective moment right now. But but the, the concept of that innovation certainly, you know, influence what's probably happening in the B2B space in kind of a positive way. But I think, I think you, rather than sort of say that I think the, um, will you see hairdressing banks? Maybe, but I think we're <laughs> early on just because we're, where, where users are in their own journey of adoption and where our understanding is about their needs and the complexity of their needs. Yeah. To add on to that, I think one of the areas that we look at is, you know, uh, debit card usage, right? And so a lot of SMEs, or 70% of them are still using their consumer debit card and credit card to operate their business, mm-hmm. right? So they even have made that basic kind of step in that direction. So, Peter, I'm going to ask you a question with your with your CEO hat on. Um, does, does focus, so it's great to find sort of product market fit and find a niche that your customers love, and that's fantastic. But then it potentially leaves your business exposed because you're really, really good at one thing. And if something changes in the market about that one thing, suddenly you find yourself in trouble. So how do you think about that as a chief executive? I mean, product market fit, great, but if we've only got one product, does that leave you vulnerable? Yes, uh, to some extent it does, uh, of course. I mean, we serve relatively small typically, you could call it retail sector, if you will. And as we all know, uh, the retail sector in the UK, as well as in in our first market in Sweden, is really in a terrible shape. And that obviously hurts quite a lot because we're straight in the middle of of the worst performing sector, uh, fundamentally, uh, with the post-COVID effect, consumers not spending uh, so much on buying things. So it creates more volatility uh, in that sense, for sure. And I guess if you have only one leg to stand on as a product, uh, you might be more vulnerable. But I, you also have quite a few advantages because 
it's going to be fairly hard for someone else to beat you at that one thing that your entire world circles around. And mm -hmm. I think if you sort of, and I think that's a way to think of specialization, not only in sort of types of businesses, but it's already happening. Is who's going to beat Stripe or Klarna uh, for for getting paid for businesses, for example, right? Uh, I think it's much more of a sort of, I mean, specialization is happening, and it's. I think it's going to be much bigger for B2B finance or B2B banking than it is for consumer banking, actually, because of all these very particular hard-to-crack use cases. How do you deal with VAT in your payments uh, platform? Uh, it's really hard. And if you do that well and integrate well, so think more of it as sort of an like ecosystem banking, if you want to have a, I don't know, uh, an invented term for it. I think that's really what's happening also, not only sort of specializing on like the trade bank and the hairdresser bank, but rather just this tech and product uh, specialization. And, and it makes sense for all of them to play well with other similar service or other banks, etc. So that's really how I see that happening. And that to some extent also, I think, gives you protection a little bit because, you know, network effects, all that usual. Absolutely right. And I think um, what's interesting coming from the perspective of Iwaka, I've been around for a decade, a bit, that what we are starting to do now is that you kind of build, when you build your first product, you're effectively also building your infrastructure. And what we're finding now is to sort of say, okay, we have this flagship product and we love it and it serves businesses and it has high product market fit and we can keep improving it. But what else can we do this infrastructure? And that's when we start to say things like, okay, we're going to have open lending because we want to embed with partners. Okay, we want to build out Iwaka Pay because we want to go into the um, the payment, solve this payment problem for our customers in the UK. Okay, we also want to start looking at RBL, but we're actually relying on our tech stack and are relying on our lending stack and relying on our risk stack. But that took a while to build. So I think I think absolutely, had we... Whereas had we done it the other way around and not started very focused on this one product and not taken the time to build the infrastructure in the way that, that we want it to be flexible, knowing we'd want to do other things in future, I think that would have been too much. So I think we really focus on one problem and now have the legs to start to experiment with new products. But, I, but I'd also say that absolutely, even in that journey, it's, it takes iteration and, and how to think about um, introducing those new products because, because they're hard. And they are three-dimensional and they're new. And so I think it's I think it's also a question of development. Atif, I'd love to hear your view on this, on this sort of question of specialization and, and the kind of conversations you're having with either of your investors or your teams about, you know, to, to what extent you diversify and sort of spread your bets and to what extent you, you know, sort of double down on the stuff you're really good at. Yeah, I think Laura nailed it, where, you know, you're solving a problem in a specific market and you've kind of built out this infrastructure layer that's very horizontal now, right? And so you, what can you kind of take into other markets and replicate to solve similar problems and challenges? So I'll give an example, you know, when we uh, founded our digital tips product, it was mainly around SMEs in the restaurant space, right, serving their needs, helping them tip out their workers. Um, since we built sort of that stack and that layer, we, we realized we can take it to salons, which also had a similar problem, or hospitality locations, right? And so we've kind of expanded the, the market opportunity with the same sort of horizontal approach there. Um, 
With that said, I think one of the things that's important too, though, is more so uh, less maybe a product diversification, but also uh, a diversification of revenue models, right? Um, we see this a lot where one revenue model in one market might not work in another market, um, especially as you move geographies and move international. And so just being kind of diversified there, I think, is really important to build just a durable business. I've got one last question for, for all three of you, just quick, quickly. Um, so particularly perhaps for listeners who are thinking about moving into this market themselves and so on. How important is it that you've experienced what it's like to be one of your customers, right? If you're going to serve small businesses well or micro businesses, does it help to have done that yourselves or have people on your team? So if you're trying to serve gig workers, is it important that someone on your team has been a gig worker or somebody's been an importer or is that an important makeup of your of your teams, is that something you try and get? Is people who've who've been there and done it as as your customer? Um, and maybe I'll throw that to Lara first, and then yeah, it's it's a great question. Actually, uh, one of my favorite um, stories of this comes from Zero. Um, so there's a, a there's a picture of one of the Zero founders when they first started working, and there's a picture of their CTO at the time, founder CTO, actually with the book Accountancy for Dummies, <laughs> um, and so did not come from an accountant background and built this powerhouse of an amazing platform. Um, you know, that's a beautiful, <laughs> business is beautiful. And I think in that case, you know, that's an anecdote that speaks to the opposite saying, you know, if you don't, if you, if, if you don't know you in this industry, you come out with a fresh perspective. Now, the other important part of this anecdote is that it's really about the high self-awareness. You have to know that you don't know. And therefore, you need to be really open-minded and actively find people and actively get information. And I'd say that's very much like our experience at Walkapay. You know, we are at, at our heart a lender, and we're really dancing into the payment business. And actually, for us to be able to you know, provide payment terms is really understanding what happens in the payment process. How can we fit in? Where are we not going to fit in? What can our product do? What can't it do? And so for that, you know, we we knew that we we didn't know. And therefore, we really needed to spend time with users and really needed to throw stuff out in the market and see what worked and go, oh, that's so good. Yes, that's good. Okay, pull back. Um, and so I think that that part of if you don't live it, it, it may, it'll be a little bit of a liability, but it might also be a little bit of an asset because you're coming with a fresh perspective. But you need the self-awareness. It'd be very dangerous to do it without the self-awareness that you don't know. Love that. Okay. Um, I said I was going to throw the question to oh, you. Sorry, that wasn't very fast. We're short of time. No, we're short of time. So, <laughs> no, but it was a great answer. So we're going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Okay, so having looked at some of the challenges and the opportunities, let's gaze into our crystal balls and think about how we might predict the future and what we think is going to come next. Um, 
So, Peter, I'm going to throw it to you because you mentioned ecosystems. And, and personally, I'm a huge believer that actually business of the future is all about companies combining their capabilities with other companies, people working together, finding opportunities in the network to find, you know, companies that have got skills that you don't have and combine your capabilities to create new sources of value. So you're pushing on an open door on that topic. But how important do you think kind of ecosystems are going to be to the future? You know, Lara mentioned zero. Is the future of small business all about who you partner with? At least as a financial service, yes, I'm, I'm strongly convinced uh, that the whole ecosystem angle is really what is going to happen. I think it's more or less unavoidable in the next decade uh, or so. Because, I mean, in all of these hundreds or thousands of use cases or niches, it it just you can solve things with tech that you couldn't before and you won't have to wait for regulation to force a fintech to have an api <laughs> right uh, i thought you said we weren't bashing banks like that's how you build <laughs> that's no that was just like it's a different mindset of how you build a business and i think that's just how you do it you want to integrate you want like to avoid like human in the loop. You want your customers to use your service through an API, ideally, uh, and partners to connect, etc. So I, I just think that is, it's, it's just so obvious to me that this is what's going to happen, and especially in B2B. I mean, in my mind, this is the next wave in FinTech is really B2B. Uh, the first big wave was really consumer. And now B2B is happening. And it's, again, going to be much more than it was for consumer because it, it's less obvious need for that in the consumer space. You don't have these VAT challenges or uh, like it's much less complex uh, in the most consumer use cases than it is in B2B. And, and therefore, it's, it's just natural, I think. Do you agree, Atif, or, or, or do you think Peter's talking nonsense? <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think, yeah, as Peter mentioned, like, you know, the first wave consumer, now we're seeing that play out in the B2B side. I think one of the, the tailwinds, too, that we're seeing from sort of this idea of like ecosystem partners playing together is one, just um, embeddable finance, right? The ability to kind of take one part of your, your stack and put it into another technology where maybe there's already distribution, maybe there's already high engagement touch points with your end user and your, your customer. Um, and so that's a lot of what's driving this as well, kind of this idea that, uh, you know, being able to embed and watch those ecosystems grow over time. Lara, I believe at iWalker, you've done quite a lot of work with partners and you've been exploring a lot of these things. It, 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 do you agree about sort of the importance of embedding and the importance of ecosystems and partnerships? Is that how you see the future too? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there is something to be said around also, I mean, well, so first of all, even before I joined, I walk ahead an API. So back in like 2016, um, they were one of the first uh, lenders to, to be able to offer an API to partners. And we are for, you know, one of our early integrations was with Tide Bank, um, which was a you know, a quite exciting step at the time. And now, now feels like very much business as usual. But I think what's interesting about embedded finance is not just that you can do it, but it's going back to like, why is it useful? Well, it's useful because how can you get in front of businesses the moment they need the decision to be made? And how do you make it just really relevant? Because I think where, um, where consumers might shop around and businesses shop around too, but often that context just helps them be like, oh, I, it's not that I need it alone, but I did need to fill this cash flow gap. And I didn't know it was a loan. 
or I needed to, um, you know, just, I need to solve my problem. And whatever the structure is, they may not go to Google it. And so embedded finance allows you to bring that to the problem and they go, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this is exactly what I need. And these are the terms that work. Awesome. And then you can also get quick feedback as like, oh, actually this type or this doesn't work or this feature isn't landing or whatever. And so I think that's where embedded finance gets quite exciting. And when you do it with partners, um, so our work with Zero, with eBay in the UK, what that allows you to do is you can work with someone who understands those customers even better than you do. So you bring all the information around their financial life and understanding their financial capability and understanding how to process that data. And they can understand their broader behaviors and their needs. And together, that's actually quite a powerful combination. Um, and so in some ways, that's sort of where specialization is almost an amplifier because you get two specialists coming together and they have an amplifying effect when they can work together. So I think that's really driven a lot of our partnership um, strategy uh, for the last few years. Atif, you, you brought up the subject of sort of embedded uh, embedded finance. Does that, does that affect your marketing strategy? Are you thinking the way you go to market, is that increasingly about partnerships rather than sort of trying to build your own brand directly? How important is sort of direct to direct to business versus partnerships in your strategy? Yeah, partnerships are, are a big part of our strategy. You know, we're a B2B to C model. Um, and ultimately, um, a lot of that's driven through partners. You know, a good example of this, a marketplace partner like an Uber, they have uh, um, over a million independent contractors, uh, you know, again, uh, solopreneurs on their system. And so we've been able to integrate with them to onboard these drivers. And in Uber's case, in fact, um, white label our application, right, for them. So their brand continuity lives on and their drivers understand the experience. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of flexibility. So, I, I mean, I took you through not only just our own application, but there's embedded, but there's also a white label kind of branded experience with partners we work with. So if we see more sort of specialization happening and, you know, more services being developed for different types of small business, do we end up with some, maybe some segments of the small business market or micro businesses that sort of end up getting left behind a bit? Peter, this is a bit of an unfair question, but, you know, sometimes I think it's the the digital businesses that, that are embracing these new services. And then you kind of have kind of the older small businesses and they kind of, they're maybe the ones that are still using, um, you know, paper records and, and things. So they're... Are there segments of the market that maybe get overlooked in, in this sort of brave new world? There is, I think, an obvious risk for the businesses that don't have the capability to adapt new technology fall behind. If you're able to add new, I don't know, market channels, for example, just being able to sell online and have a good checkout experience and good sort of uh, fulfillment experience in, in logistics, for example, which is not super hard to do, but for a solo entrepreneur, that can be quite a challenge. Then, of course, you have things like Shopify, for example, really solving many of those problems in a simple way. But 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 that shift, I think, is rather dramatic. If, if you can't uh, do that, you will fall behind. We had a fun, fun conversation with one, for us, a rather unusual <laughs> customer. They were doing these sort of hydraulic engines for excavators. Very, very niche, uh, let's say. A fairly old guy, not super techie. And he actually called one day. It's like, ah, I tested uh, putting ads on Facebook. And I was like, can you actually sell these hydraulic engines? And it's like, the, the phone just keeps ringing. So uh, it's, it's not that big a hurdle anymore. But I think if you're not willing to try, 
others will be there. And, and that's just like business is becoming digital in every sort of facet. Yeah, I think yeah, on the profitability segment, I think it comes down to two big things, right? It's uh, can you acquire the customer efficiently? Do you have some distribution advantage? Can you properly assess risk efficiently? Do you have some like unique data to mitigate risk, right? So if you look at a, a company like, at least in the States, like Intuit, right? They have tons of SMEs on their platform. Um, so they can get their product, new products and services in front of them at a very low cost. And then, you know, in terms of interesting data, they have a lot on that too, to tell, give sort of like a holistic picture of this SME. They have financial data, they have payroll data. And so they can provide them potentially a better experience from a financial standpoint than an SME can find on the open market, right? Okay, I want to bring you all back uh, onto the original question. So uh, sort of a minute each on the original question of, is the future of small business banking going to be more specialized? In the future, are we going to see small business services that are much more specialized than what we have today? Uh, yes or no? Yes. Uh, we're such an early stage of understanding the range of small business needs and therefore an early stage of being able to develop the products and services that are really going to help them grow and develop. Um, and so I'd say yes. I think whether it's specialists or or a group or one person who develops multiple specialties, that's to be determined. Peter? Yes, uh, 100%. It's, it's going to be much more specialization. And I, it could be worth adding from my perspective that it's not there will still be aggregators of those services. And one of the interesting things, I believe, is that it's not necessarily the banks that will be the aggregators. It could just as well be a SaaS platform for uh, online stores, for example, which is already happening. And I think that's another important aspect of this, that, that aggregating financial services, which is fundamental what large banks do, might happen other places. And Atif? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, I think I've highlighted here a lot of uh, as new SMEs come to the market, right? You uncover new pain points, new needs, and problems to solve. And so, uh, you know, companies will be out there specializing and attacking those head on. Well, tempted as I am to disagree with my esteemed guests, I actually I'm, I'm in violent agreement with all three of you that uh, <laughs> that the future is going to be much more specialized services delivered, probably increasingly through partners. I completely agree with your point, Peter, about SaaS um, platforms and other platforms that are coming in and providing a whole range of services to small businesses. So brilliant. That wraps up today's discussion. I happily talk to you, uh, you guys all day. I love this conversation. Thank you so, so much uh, for joining me. Where can our listeners um, find out a little bit more about uh, each of you and your companies? Uh, Lara, where can people find out more about you and iWalker? Uh, so I'd say the best place, uh, of course, you can go to iWalker Pay uh, to check out that particular product. But I would um, probably go check out iWalker on LinkedIn. Um, you'll hear about all of our products and services there and, and you'll find me there as well. Thank you. And Atif? Similarly, you can check us out at branchapp.com. Uh, otherwise, check us out on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And Peter? Very similar answer. Uh, trade.io, T-R-E-Y-D.io uh, is the best place. And please reach out on LinkedIn. And you can find me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn or via 11fs.com. So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do subscribe. Uh, please let us know what you'd like to hear about on future podcasts. Give us your feedback. Uh, help us make the show uh, even better. If you want to join the conversation, uh, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS uh, or Fintech Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. And I'm so tempted to say that we have a fax machine, but we don't. Anyway, thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.